Good morning. Thank you for being here. And as a courtesy to the people sitting around you, would you make sure that your phone is in the off position where we won't hear it? And welcome to those of you who are pajama people out there. And uh, I, the last thing I want anybody to do is to feel bad. But if you're in the Harris County area and you're not here, you're in big trouble. Um, see, there's going to be this day of judgment when you stand. Well, never mind. So, so I'm glad you're here. Let's, let's begin uh, as we do in some silence, just trying to do what's necessary to be here. Take a deep breath and get grounded. So we give gratitude just for the opportunity to be here and um, my wish for those of you who are gathered in person or online is that you find what you're looking for, that you be happy and that you have peace and joy and most of all that what we do here contributes to the well-being of all people everywhere. So no matter who you are, no matter where you are on your spiritual journey, you are welcome here. We're going to have fun today. You have no idea what's in store. Uh, I'm going to tell you ahead of time, so you can be anticipating it, that the title of this class, Time Together Today, is Using Humpty Dumpty for Spiritual Guidance. You would never in a hundred years have anticipated that that's where we're going today, but... Stay tuned. Now, um, I, I'm, I'm involved in a series of talks uh, trying to get us ready to do the last two or three chapters in the Gospel of John. And so I ended last week, and these I can't redo all of that, or the talk I did on myths, but I just want you to remember this, that mature spirituality always requires us to question our assumptions and our conclusions. And it requires us to stand in the presence of that which we cannot name, the mystery we do not know, but in our gut, in our intuition, what we resonate with, which is a good spiritual guideline, by the way, resonance, we know is true. And the word that I emphasize in this is mature spirituality. And then I put it another way by saying that mature spirituality is opposite of narcissism, which we have just a little bit of in our culture. <laughs> narcissism wants to be in charge. Narcissism, narcissism wants never to be surprised. Whereas mature spirituality dishes up truth and experiences wherever we least expect them. And again, what's underlined here is 
mature spirituality. So today what I want to talk about some is language and assumptions. Because if you remember, when we started this deep dive into John, we talked about the importance of how words create worlds, and then worlds create words. Genesis begins. First this. God created the heavens and the earth. All you see, all you don't see, earth was a soup of nothingness, a bottomless emptiness, an inky blackness. God's spirit brooded like a bird above the watery abyss. God spoke light, and light appeared. And so on it goes through this version of the creation myth. This version, God names, God speaks, God spoke, things appear. Words create worlds. And then um, in the Gospel of John, you, the Gospel of John begins, the word was first. The word present to God, God present to the word. The word was God. Words create worlds, worlds create words. Now, learning words and how they're used in our culture is not easy. Especially for those whose first language is, is English, it may be easy, but English is a hard language. Uh, single words can have multiple meanings. The word set, S-E-T, has over 600 different definitions. The word run has over 600 different definitions. The word take, the word stand, each have over 300 definitions. For example, the word stand can mean taking a stand for something. Stand is what you do when you get up from sitting. A stand is a place from which some items are sold in local markets, the taco stand. If you Google the phrase words that have multiple meanings, you will be taken down some really delightful rabbit holes, if this is your thing, if you like this sort of thing, which I really do. I mean, people who are trying to learn language, uh, English as a second language must be terribly confused by the way we use words. For example, the bandage was wound around the wound. Or the officials said of the landfill said they would refuse more refuse. Mm. Or I love this one. He sang in a bass voice while he beat on a bass drum because he'd caught a bass fish. <laughs> so one of the ways that children born into the English-speaking world is to learn about language through the use of puns and wordplay. Now, I know that some of you wince and groan when um, I occasionally do puns, but I want to just tell you that the J.D. Powers and Associates Research Group found out that adults who enjoy telling and hearing puns are in the upper level of intelligence in the society. They are incredibly fun to be with. They have greater sex appeal and they tend to make stuff like this up. 
So I'm remembering when my grandchildren, who are now both in the university, uh, they used to love to come and tell me their jokes. And, and boy, they had jokes. Granddad, what has four wheels and flies? A garbage truck. Some of you, other, other of you have grandchildren as well. How does the moon cut his hair? Eclipse it. What did the mama melon say to the, her daughter who decided to run off and get married? You can't elope. The, uh, the, the, the entire world of magic. Now, Scott Wells is here today, so he's a fellow magician. He knows magic. Magic is filled with misdirection using words. I have here a red handkerchief. It's red on both sides. But because I am a master magician, don't try this at home. Uh, I can take this red handkerchief and turn it into a white egg. Now, I am also a member of the International Brotherhood of Magicians, and we swear, we take an oath, that we will never reveal the secret of any magic effect. But I'm going to do it today, <laughs> because Scott has just said that I can. Now, I want to tell you two things about learning about doing something like this. Because people do say, when I do something in here, could you teach us how to do something that we could do at home for our kids? Okay, I will. But I want to tell you two things about it. First of all, the explanation of any magic effect in the world is two things. Very, very simple and very disappointing. <laughs> the secret to turning a silk egg into, I mean a silk into an egg is twofold. First of all, you have to have two silks because that silk traveled to my pocket. The other silk is in the egg because the egg is a plastic egg that has a hole in it. Now, you can make one of these yourself by taking an egg and putting a pencil in the back and shaking it out and then soaking it in vinegar for three days. And then after that, you just throw the whole thing away because that doesn't work. Or you can go to Hobby Lobby. You, I don't think there's a magic store in Houston anymore, is there? Uh, you can go online and you can get a plastic egg that has a hole. So this is the way this works. The egg, the, the, the egg is, was secreted, secreted behind my briefcase, which you couldn't see. The other silk handkerchief was in my pocket. And while I was reaching down to get the handkerchief, I picked up the egg and put it in my pocket. I palmed it in my hand like this. That's what magicians call palming. Now, I don't have to be so careful this time because you know how it works. You stuff the silk handkerchief into the egg like this. Okay? Now, I'm going to show you 
This is really not a move because there's no move in this. But as they say in magic, if nobody is chasing you, don't run. This is the only move in this trip. So pay close attention. Watch my hand carefully. You take the egg that has the handkerchief in it and you raise it up and you look at it. People will look at where you're looking, right? And that way you have a chance to show your hand empty and then to go in your pocket and produce the handkerchief. And that's a secret. Okay. This is, a, this is what we call in magic an um, a angle-sensitive trick. Because if people are too far on either side or people are sitting behind you, they will see this and that will give it away. You remember those Acme, uh, those cartoons, Looney Tune cartoons, where the, the roadrunner was trying to get away from Wally Coyote and Wally Coyote would paint a hole in the side of a cliff, pretending it was a cave, and the roadrunner would just run right through it. That's what I do if I get caught doing this. I simply turn the egg around and I take the hole in the silk and I just peel it off like that. And then I take this egg and I break it. That's a simple magic trick right there. And you can go home and do that for your kids. So in the Gospel of John, that will fit in what we're going to talk about later. In the Gospel of John, there are, there are two key concepts that the Gospel of John is really all about. One of those key concepts is a concept called incarnation. The word incarnation is not in the Gospel of John. The other word is the word resurrection, and resurrection is in the Gospel of John, and most biblical commentators say that the Gospel of John was written precisely to explain that community's understanding of the resurrection. So today's talk is about resurrection, because when we get to it in the Gospel of John, it's going to be really important that you understand some of the things that we've talked about before, the role of myth and mythology, the use of language, and now this entire understanding of resurrection. Um, <clears throat> the death and resurrection of Jesus is not only a phrase or concept that's used in all the Gospels, it is also used in the writings of Paul, which were written before the Gospels, but it is also a phrase that has been used down through the centuries to this very time and indeed was used in the worship service at 8.30 here this morning and will be used again at the 11 o'clock service. We in this uh, church use the Apostles' Creed. And the Apostles' Creed contains the line, I believe that Jesus was crucified, dead, and buried. We leave out the phrase, descended into hell. The third day he rose from the dead, he ascended into heaven and is sitting at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. I love Michael Moorwood's spiritual direction guidance when it comes to something like this. Michael Moorwood says, what are you asking me to imagine when you ask me to affirm this? What are you asking, what are we asking someone else to imagine? Now, the story of the death and resurrection of Jesus is one of those stories that everybody thinks they know. And 
just like the Christmas story, what we know about the death and resurrection of Jesus is largely something that in, has been taught to us through art, mostly from the 14th, 15th, and 16th centuries, stained glass windows, and movies that appear around Holy Week during the Easter season. Most of the art we have about the resurrection, everybody knows Da Vinci's The Last Supper. Um, when the Da Vinci Code book came out, I was asked to do a lot of talking about uh, that book and all the stuff because the people are interested in secrets and the church had kept a big secret about sexual abuse and all that stuff and all. Um, though most people may not know it, the, author, the painter of this, uh, Ciceri, this is called Behold the Man. This may be one of the most famous paintings about the crucifixion or resurrection story. Um, maybe you have not seen Pero Della's uh, painting of uh, the resurrection, but everybody knows the story. The disciples or the guards went to sleep around the tomb, allowing Jesus to escape. And then, of course, there is Rembrandt's famous painting of the ascension. Um, and the disciples who were not able to see the ascension, they were suffering from ascension deficit disorder. <laughs> so. so, as, as I mentioned earlier, the, the earliest reference we have to the resurrection is from Paul, not from the gospel. And Paul was a Jew in a world that divided the, the population of the world into two groups. There were Jews and there were Gentiles. Now, Paul was not a Christian in the sense that we think of what a Christian is. Paul was far less interested in Jesus than Paul was interested in the Christ. And the stories about what happened after the crucifixion of Jesus not only developed over time, but if you pull them all out and laid them side by side, you would see that there are dramatic differences between them, so much that they can really not be harmonized or homogenized into one seamless narrative. But that is exactly what's happened. Now keep in mind, most of the teaching about the resurrection was done in a world where people could not read. And the teaching was done mostly in stained glass depictions, music, and artwork. So the story of the resurrection is just loaded with emotional meaning for many people, and that's true for two reasons. First, a lot of people have scenes of the crucifixion firmly in their mind, they think about the paintings that you've seen or the movies that they've seen, and, and they've seen Mel Gibson's The Passion of the Christ, and they know what happened. Or the story of the resurrection can be a landmine because for many people, their sense of eternal salvation and security are tied with what they believe about the resurrection. You believe in the resurrection? You know, I've had that question asked of me about... Some of you have reported trying to get people to come to class, and they say, well, does he believe in the Bible? Does he believe in the resurrection? Does he believe in the literal resurrection of Jesus? And there are people who whole relationship with the Christian faith hinges on, yes, they do, or no, that couldn't have happened, don't believe it, I'm, 
I'm not having any. So let's just keep that in mind, that this is, can be a landmine for people. So let's talk about words, meanings, and assumptions. As I said, I think it's a miracle that any kind of communication takes place between us in here at all. I call it the miracle of dialogue. Just the fact that one person can cause two flaps of skin to vibrate in their throat and send out sound waves that strike your eardrums and they vibrate and are translated into neurons that go into your brain that translate that vibration into a word and we can understand each other. That's a miracle. That is a miracle. And to say nothing of the fact of how many differences there are in this room. There are differences in age. There are differences in gender, sexual orientation, differences in education, differences in life experience, differences in where you grew up in the world. There are differences in ethnicity, differences of all kinds. That we can bridge that gap is incredible. It's a, just a, a miracle. I heard a story of a man who had been imprisoned, and like many people, he felt he had been imprisoned unfairly, and he tried every appeal to get out, nothing worked, and finally take inspira taking inspiration from the Shawshank Redemption, he decided to escape and dug a tunnel out of the prison. You've seen that movie. If you haven't seen that movie, I recommend it to you. So he dug out, dug out, dug out, dug out, dug out. When he was out far enough, he dug up, started digging up. And, and finally, he broke into fresh air and daylight. And in his success, he started shouting for joy, I'm free, I'm free. And what he didn't realize is that he'd come up in the playground of a kindergarten. And so this little boy walked up to him, and the man said, I'm free, I'm free. The little boy said, I'm four. The communication between us can just be so difficult. I, I had an attorney friend who said a woman came to see him seeking for a divorce, and, and he asked her, he said, do you have any grounds? And she said, we got about an acre and a half outside of Katy. And he said, no, that's not what I mean. Do you have like a grudge? And she said, no, we have a carport that serves us well. And he said, no, ma'am, do you have anything? I mean, do you have a reason? Like, does he beat you up? And he, she said, no, we got up at about the same time. <laughs> and he finally said, why in the world do you want a divorce? And she said, I just can't seem to communicate with that guy. <clears throat> just the word communication is problematic. When somebody, a couple comes to see me for counseling and they say, we have trouble communicating, I know immediately that isn't the trouble. They have trouble talking. Because there is no behavior in the presence of another person that doesn't communicate something. If I go home from work and I say to Sherry, how was your day? And she's fine. <laughs> fine ain't what she meant. Something else is communicate. So one of the main problems in dealing with the resurrection is that of language and assumption 
And just the whole issue of translation, which uh, when I started learning Greek in the seminary, for which I find absolutely no use for in my daily life, one of my professors said, all translations are mistranslations. All are a mixture of good and bad. The best translations we have of what we call the New Testament are versions. I, I have friends for whom English is their native language, is not their native language, and will be conversing. And they will try to think of some idiom in their language they want to say to me in English, and they'll finally say, it doesn't translate in English. I can't put it in English. I begin to think about how this applies to Aramaic, Hebrew, Greek, English, the word resurrection. I don't know if you're aware of this, but the thing coming down the pike for all of us is AI, artificial intelligence. It is how Amazon knows what you want to buy next. And Ilya Delio is convinced, as a matter of fact, has written an entire volume on AI and theology and spirituality. It is the coming thing. You might have heard that there was a worker fired from Google, wasn't it recently, who, who made the announcements that their AI had intelligence of an eight-year-old and they fired that person? You know, wonder maybe. In the early days of our trying to get on top of AI, seeing if computers could take a phrase from English and translate it into another language and back, one of the phrases that they used was this, out of sight, out of mind. So they fed it to the computer, and what they got back was invisible insanity. I, I was watching a NOVA program the other night on PBS, and they were talking about the space race and sending men, not women, into space. At the time, first efforts were in hot air balloons that went up over 100,000 feet. I mean, amazing story. And, and so what thrust that from uh, the Air Force into NASA was the Russians putting up the first satellite, the Sputnik satellite. And so we were in a big arms race with Russia trying now to figure out how we could get things done. And, and again, so they turned the energy to, can computers help us understand what's going on in the Russian language? So they put a phrase into the computer, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And what they got back was the vodka was good, but the meat was rotten. So, take all of that I've said so far and apply it to the word resurrection. The difficulties in correctly understanding and communicating resurrection are multitudinous because it comes with so much history and so much emotional baggage. And, and there's another risk for us in this room or online in this time and space when I bring up matters like Greek, Hebrew, cultural belief systems, another time, another place. I can see people's eyes kind of glazing over and people looking for the nearest exit. So, <clears throat> But folks, if we don't deal with these issues, issues like Hebrew, Greek, cultural differences and all that sort of stuff, 
we relinquish the territory to fundamentalism. Fundamentalism and ignorance go hand in hand. So we got to smarten up about this. So I entered the word resurrection into uh, Google. And the first response I got was of a movie that has not been released yet. The next response I got, which I think shows the influence of the Western world on Google, was resurrection means the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Wow. The next reference I got was the act of rising from the dead. Now, you're sitting down, so you won't be surprised or stunned too much by what you're about to hear. The word resurrection did not have any of these meanings when Paul wrote. None. In Greek, the word we translate resurrection means just to stand up. When... Mary presents Jesus for um, circumcision in the temple. There is a man, Simeon, who does this prophecy about Jesus and said, this child is destined for the rising and falling of many in Israel. And the word rising means standing up, just standing up. That's all it means. Now, as I mentioned, Paul is the first in the Christian tradition who writes about resurrection. And in the first instance we have, um, Paul says, our message is, quote, he has gotten up from the dead. And Paul is using an everyday Greek word simply meaning he stood up. And he's using it metaphorically. Now, again, our understanding is so been influenced by art from the 15th century, that that determines what we look for rather than what we see. So here's a phrase from Richard Rohr that I use a lot, but it fits here, no telling how much trouble religion has caused for itself and others, because it has been intent on teaching people what to look for rather than how to see. That's Rohr. what to look for. Okay. So I'm going to give you an example, and you could play along with me. And now the title begins to make sense. Humpty Dumpty sat on a wall. Humpty Dumpty had a great fall. All the king's horses and all the king's men couldn't put Humpty together again. Is there anybody in this room who has not heard this So, what's going on here? What's this about? I'm sorry? Oh, what? The King of England. The King of England? Somebody else? A what? An egg. Okay. How many of you think of egg when you think of Humpty Dumpty? Okay. Those of you who don't, would you see me after class? <laughs> okay, look at it. Look at it carefully. Where in there is the mention of an egg? 
There isn't one. Somebody joked that Humpty Dumpty had a great fall because he had such a bad summer. Um, remember what J.D.'s power has said about puns now. I just make that up. <clears throat> the, uh, I've got three dictionaries on nursery rhymes, thanks to Sherry, because she loves that stuff like that. But the uh, Oxford Dictionary of nurse, Nursery Rhymes, the authority on this, says that likely this nursery rhyme came from a game that children played where they didn't use their hands and they rocked back and forth like eggs. Nobody knows for sure. One theory is that Humpty Dumpty was the name of a war cannon mounted on the wall of St. Mary's Church in Gloucester, it was made of cast iron, and while not as light as an egg, was nevertheless quite brittle. The city was in a battle the king's men held on as long as they could. The battle either In the battle, either the cannon was misfired or captured. Either way, it went off the wall, broken to pieces, and could not be put back together again. Why do we think of an egg? Oh, the answer is so simple. Lewis Carroll wrote a book and somebody illustrated it and they said, we need something to look like Humpty Dumpty and that's it. Now once you think that the egg is in Humpty Dumpty, it's hard to get it out of your mind. So once we think of resurrection in any of the terms that are presented to us through art, movie, and so forth, it's hard to get that out of our minds. If we isolate resurrection to something that happened to Jesus or did not, we remove it from our lives. And that's a travesty. Because in John, resurrection means about an invitation into a new life right here, right now, being raised to walk in newness of life. That's resurrection. Now, I would say the same thing about incarnation, and when we'll get there, we'll... When you say the incarnation, it more than likely locates the incarnation to Jesus. God became man. But if you just say incarnation, God became human. God becoming human. God is inhuman. God is in you. God is in stuff. That's the Jewish meaning of incarnation. I hope you see the importance of this. When in John there is talk about resurrection, it's an invitation to a new expanded understanding of life and living. It is not a doctrine to believe in. <clears throat> One of the key principles of fundamentalism is the literal, physical, bodily resurrection of Jesus. And as I said, on one side are people who believe it. I believe it literally happened. One day, three days after crucifixion, Jesus walked out of a tomb in a body that people could see. Other people said, that didn't happen. I know dead bodies don't resuscitate. I don't believe that, so I'm out of here. Let's put what happened or didn't happen just aside for a minute. 
Because if we don't do that, all we're going to see is an egg or no egg. In the earliest mention of resurrection in the Christian writings we have from Paul, and we don't even have Paul's earliest writings. Uh, it's clear from what Paul wrote that he wrote other stuff that we don't have. And at the time Paul wrote, there was no Apostles' Creed. There were no narratives of the gospel. Um, Paul was just trying to figure it out as he went along. And um, he focused really not on Jesus, but on a term that he used for Jesus called the Christ. And I have some colleagues whom I highly respect who have little use for Paul because they claim that Paul made a religion out of Jesus that Jesus himself would never recognize. And they're more interested in what Jesus taught and did, the historical Jesus. But be that as it may, if we understand Paul better, we'll understand the myth of the resurrection as it got communicated in that world and began to make its way into the narratives of Mark, Luke, Matthew, and then eventually decades later in John. So hang on. I will get through this eye-glazing stuff as fast as possible. Paul wrote to a group of people called Gentiles. Those Gentiles that Paul wrote to had been converted from worshiping idols to worshiping the Jewish God. The Jewish God was alive. This is a very important thing, the theology of Judaism. And turning from the worship of idols to giving allegiance to the living God this turning would itself soon become a theological word called conversion. All right? One was converted from one way of seeing things to another. Now, this conversion didn't mean that these Gentiles had become Jews. Rather, it meant that they had become righteous Gentiles. So for Paul, the world was divided into Jews and Gentiles. And again, the temptation is to read Christian assumptions, as we understand Christian, back into the writings of Paul. So Paul refers to Jesus as the Son of God, which simply means for Paul, Jesus is the anointed one. That's why he uses the word Christ instead of Jesus. Hang on. We're going there. We get there. So <clears throat> the distinguishing characteristic of the Jewish God was that he was alive. The Jews, as did all people at that time, didn't distinguish between the sky and the heaven. They were one. If the sky was up, it was the sky or heaven, either one. The sky is what separated the earth, which is where mortals lived, from the heaven, which is where spirits lived. So their notion was heaven was quite physical. Our notion is if we have one of heaven is it's mystical and misty and off out there somewhere. But for them it was right up there. So when Paul uses the phrase Jesus stood up from the dead, he stood up into that realm. Okay? It's a metaphorical way of describing what Paul thought happened to Jesus. Now, in ancient Judaism, there was no belief in life after death. 
Why? Because that was one of the ways that Judaism differentiated itself from the other religions. Belief in an afterlife for Jews would have threatened their insistence on belief in one God, the living God. Now, those of us who've grown up in the West with Greek notions of immortality of the soul may be surprised by this, but it is in the Jewish scriptures. It's in the Hebrew Bible. Um, the book of Ecclesiastes is full of this. So are many of the Psalms. Here's one of the Psalms that I thought of. Ah, oh, God, listen to my prayer, my cry. Open your ears. Don't be callous. Just look at these tears of mine. I'm a stranger here. I don't know my way. A, a migrant like my whole family, give me a break. Cut me some slack before it's too late, and I'm out of here, meaning I'm gone. Now, this kind of thing is not meant to be despairing or hopeless. It's meant to impart wisdom in the people who heard this kind of poetry. It was not to mean to make us despairing. Now, though the Jews had no belief in afterlife, all their neighbors did. And they were not to associate with those people, the Jews. They were separate. For, for non-Jews, the dead were powerful like God. They had God-like powers. They could interfere with life, so they needed to be placated. And the prophets of Israel railed against these practices of, of honoring the dead. And so the Jewish people had been affected by these beliefs. So in the parable of the Good Samaritan, when you had the priest and the Levite going on the other side of the men, they thought assumed dead by the side of the road. They were just trying to stay clean. Don't touch a dead person. Because the sin in Judaism was idolatry. And the dead threatened God's uniqueness. And then there was a shift that occurred. And you're going to have to wait till next week to hear about that. <laughs> I'm serious because we're running out of time. But I'll just tell you that the title of next week's talk um, is Shift, Shift Happens. <laughs> so. <clears throat> so let's go back to where we started. Mature spirituality is the opposite of narcissism which needs to be in charge, never surprised. Mature spirituality dishes up truth and experiences when we least expect them. Maybe you got something you least expected about resurrection today. And now what I'm underlying is mature spirituality. Now, in earlier stages of development, we got to go through them. It's like you got to learn to walk, crawl before you can walk. They're necessary in my own spiritual, religious development. I'm very grateful for that early period of my life, but we need mature people in this culture. When I had my first encounter with Ilya Delio, and I felt such relief, joy, exhilaration, someone putting into language what I intuited about the worldview, um, I knew that there was no system of thought, philosophic, theologic, scientific, that could ever fully embrace the mystical experience of God. So in John, Jesus says to Nicodemus, Hey, buddy, this is as ungraspable as the wind. Nicodemus got up and left. 
I hope you don't. We cannot find a theology that explains God. We can find a theology that is in sympathy with this mystical outlook. And that's precisely what you have in the Gospel of John. You know, when I began to share what I was learning from Ilya Delio and Jim Finley and other people years ago in here, I don't remember now how long it's been, I got two responses in, in, from people who came to class over and over and over and over. You know what they were? What about prayer? And what about heaven? What happens when I die? People wanted to know what or who they could call on if they really got in a jam. God's out there. And where am I going to go after I die? Like there's another place? Heaven's out there? Now again, the ego is frightened of change and not being in control. We want a state of salvation where the elements of spontaneity and mystery are largely removed. So... Um, I know a few mystics, I think, and my experience of them is that for the mystic, sacred mystery is right here, right now, in this specific moment. And at the same time, this sacred mystery is so immeasurably other. And it's both at the same time. It's also paradoxical. That's why Meister Eckhart, John of the Cross, Teresa of Avila, these other people have reemerged recently in our theology, in our thinking. You remember Meister Eckhart? The same eye with which I see God is the eye with which God sees me. Now that's good theology. Mature spirituality moves away from it's all about me. And as I've said many, many times, there's nothing in our culture that supports the kind of thing you hear me saying. Because our culture is about how can I be important? How can I be safe? How can I be attractive? How can I make money? How can I look good? How can I be successful? And if religious, how can I go to heaven when I die? These are all ego questions. They're not questions of the self. They're not questions of the soul. Wanting to go to heaven when I die is about securing my future. It's not about a shared humanity. It's not a future for humanity. Immature spirituality is a private insurance plan for the future. It isn't the love Jesus talked about, about the beloved community in which he invited people to join. This is why I think we have such cultural difficulty caring for the earth. It's why we have such cultural difficulty caring for each other. It's why social justice issues don't get a good hearing among most of our population. Humpty Dumpty had a great fall. And one of the points of this class today is that when we fall, really fall into grace, we don't fall into individualism. We fall into commonality. We fall into community. The whole that can hold all of us 
cannot hold any of us in an isolated state. We are part of all that is, all who are. Folks, this is, I think, the peace that passes understanding. And when we get to it in John, it is the peace Jesus is quoted as saying, which he said, I give you my peace. It is a peace that the world cannot take away from you. No matter where you go this week, no matter what happens, remember this, you carry precious cargo. So please watch your step, and I'll see you here next week.